Man of Steel, Answers, Insight, Commentary, Episode 64, Commitment. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Mosaic. I'm Doc, and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and look forward to the future while learning from the past. This episode takes a look at how commitment fosters character. This show dives deep into DC Films for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that give us so much. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC Films and who love to chew their food. Hello, hope you're having a great holiday. What follows is a brief that I'm just going to air as an episode. It was originally intended as just fast filler for the 4th of July, but it ended up as anything but brief. Basically, it answers the question of how you can continue after you've opened Pandora's box of problems. Don't all these questions and issues paint the characters into a corner that isn't anything like the comics? No, not at all. The episode is how we cope with chaos in real life through commitment to live better beyond it, not plagued by all the same issues that arose in the crisis. The overall theme is that in committing to things and others outside yourself, beyond individualism, alleviates loneliness, repairs relationships, governs growth, and creates change. But along the way, we'll interpret Man of Steel and BVS and answer all sorts of criticisms, like Man of Steel is structured wrong. Why didn't they show the honeymoon? Superhero movies should be escapist. Nairomi was completely unneeded and so much more. Okay, that's all the intro I've got time to do. Have a happy 4th of July. Mosaic Brief 4. Welcome to another brief. That isn't. (laughs) It's meant mainly to transition from the last topic to the next, and I'm partway through producing another short miniseries on priors and culture. And I just wanted to address something before we got there. Something of a response to unexamined individualism taken for granted as an ideal. It's part of why I cut out that discussion about individualism from the Mother's Day episode, because motherhood is inherently relational, familial, and communal, more than the individual I. And of course, what does a leap of faith into communal commitments causes be beyond oneself and greater than oneself, like saving the world, relating to divinity, service or sacrifice to community, look like compared to isolated individual pursuits. In fact, as I was editing the episode, I recalled something that I had recently heard. We also have a social and relational crisis. We're fragmented from each other. We're in the valley. And so I've spent the last five years, how do you get out of a valley? And the Greeks used to say, you suffer your way to wisdom. And from that dark period where I started, I've had a few realizations. Freedom sucks. Economic freedom is okay, political freedom is great, social freedom sucks. The unrooted man is the adrift man. The unrooted man is the unremembered man because he's uncommitted to things. Freedom, it's not an ocean you want to swim in, it's a river you want to get across so you can commit and plant yourself on the other side. More from Brooks a little later. So I saw the 4th of July coming up and I gave myself 48 hours to do this or else it goes into the vault. (laughs) So I apologize if it's rough and rambling, But I figure you're already used to it by now. (laughs) 
So as we approach the 4th of July and consider our freedoms and independence, I thought I'd comment on commitment as a bridge to our next couple of episodes, which aren't ready yet, but are on other ways to look at the world. It isn't entirely new. I've talked about it in the context of Superman sharing with Swanwick that he was raised in Kansas before or embracing the love of Lois. Ties that bind and create restraints, they limit freedom in some sense, but they allow freedom in another sense that the unbound man can never know. Marriage, parenting, faith, service, expertise, and so on can only reach their highest heights or deepest depths with more than a casual commitment. As Edmund Burke said, men are qualified for civil liberty in exact proportion to their disposition to put moral chains upon their own appetites. Society cannot exist unless a controlling power upon the will and appetite are placed somewhere, and the less of it that there is within the more that there must be without. It is ordained in the eternal constitution of things that men of intemperate minds cannot be free. Their passions forge their fetters. <laughs> and my apologies to all our British listeners out there. Longtime Superman fans are well attuned to how the mythos explores Superman's restraints and moral chains, which qualify him as an exemplar of freedom and of virtue. As much as Superman seeks security for society, it is his commitments that keep him from tipping towards tyranny. But that's the larger mythos after decades of establishing norms, expectations, and assumptions now taken for granted. How would Superman get there in the first place. This is explored by these films. And let's just dive directly into BVS. Are you, as a United States Senator, personally comfortable saying to a grieving parent, Superman could have saved your child, but on principle, we did not want him to act. I'm not saying he shouldn't act. I'm saying he shouldn't act unilaterally. What are we talking about here then? Must there be a Superman. There is. So the ambiguity here allows for a range of interpretations, but let's try to work through at least one. The initial line is saying that the principle of oversight and accountability will limit Superman's autonomy and ability to act immediately to save lives. And it's questioning whether Finch is willing to accept that trade, the principle of oversight in exchange for some lives lost. Finch, like the experienced politician that she is, doesn't directly answer the question. She implies that Superman should save lives, and that they want him to continue to do so, but with conditions that preclude unilateral action. It's unspoken, but she wants assurances, guarantees, checks, balances, accountability, oversight, and commitment. Of course, the consequences of those desires and conditions is the possibility of regulating Superman out of existence. No one knows how much Superman's superheroics are conditioned on his autonomy, free will, choice, and independence. Certainly, from Man of Steel, we know... Look, I'm here to help. But it has to be on my own terms. But we also know... Oh, man, I'll just disappear again. The only way you could disappear for good is to stop helping people altogether, and I sense that's not an option for you. I suspect, after saving the world and doing good two solid years, Lois isn't the only one with that sense. I think Finch thinks it too, which is why she thinks she can both trust and call Superman to Congress. That's why she says there is, and believes that there is room for getting a commitment out of Superman. One interpretation might be that, regardless of your concerns, we must deal with the present fact 
fact of his existence, and dealing with it is unlikely to regulate it out of existence as you fear. But let's not brush past the point of the question. Must there be a Superman? As we've said in the past, in the absolute sense, the answer is obviously no. Clark isn't Superman because of some physical law, legal regulation, or objective requirement. If he stops being Superman, everything still continues on as it ever did. When the question is asked, to date, there is nothing stopping Superman from stopping. If the requirements, regulations, criticisms, or costs are too great, there might not be a Superman. That's the point being raised. And somewhat astonishingly, people take it for granted that Superman can't or won't quit, despite this being a reoccurring theme across the superhero mythos. Even if we limit ourselves to just the movies, Superman quit in Superman 2, 3, 4, and returns. To be with Lois in 2, once corrupted in 3, to lick his wounds in 4, and to find Krypton in returns. Do I need to say anything but Spider-Man no more? Batman Forever features Bruce trying to choose to lead a normal life. Batman Rises is bookended by retirement on both ends. Logan is coming out of retirement one last time. Wonder Woman walked away, and retirement abounds in Endgame. The life of a superhero isn't normal, and it's practically expected that one ought to give it up if not driven by neurosis, trauma, psychiatric conditions, guilt complexes, and so on. In the above stories, the return is often about necessity. If not for Doomsday, Wonder Woman doesn't reappear that day. If not for Bane, Bruce continues to limp about his mansion. If not for the Phantom Zone criminals, Clark stays with Lois in that super shiny bed. <laughs> that means unless or until any cheese, non-human entities like Zod, Doomsday, Enchantress, or Steppenwolf become the world-threatening norm, this Superman could call it quits. As bad as Batman may be, or Lex is, their actions aren't apocalyptic. Finch comes at Superman with conditions that he could refuse. Not that he would, but he could and might. Initially, it may seem like a continuation of the themes of choice and free will for Man of Steel, that Finch represents an illegitimate authority trying to clip the Superman's cape with coercion, and we ought to favor an unfettered hero free to fly, unchained and able to do whatever he wants. We could interpret this as a matter of rights and entitlements, or as an economic or contractual exchange. And these are possible interpretations, but it doesn't really account for why Finch's claims weigh on Clark so much, or why he actually ends up going to Congress if he doesn't feel beholden to them at all. Instead, another interpretation is more relational and less zero-sum game. If we look at Clark's interactions with America like it's courtship, dating, or a romantic interest, and we put it parallel with his relationship with Lois, we might start to understand the push and pull of insecurity and commitment. There are a million different models for the stages and steps of a romantic relationship, so I'm not claiming this to be definitive at all. And in actual practice, couples cycle between stages, arrive at different points at different times and different rates, or have entirely different personal experiences. But just so that we have some guideposts to begin with, it often goes something like these seven stages. 
First, there is appreciation. Typically, initially, asymmetrically, one party noticing an attraction to the other. Next, there is infatuation, or what some call the euphoria stage. In terms of amplitude, the neurochemical effects here are the strongest, leading to fairy tale narratives and expressions like love is blind, and perceiving one's partner as perfect or easily forgiven. Brain mapping shows the explicit suspension of negative judgment from decreased activity in the prefrontal cortex. Dr. Lucy Brown, clinical professor of neurology at Einstein College of Medicine in New York, says that the stage lasts between six months and two years in most cases. Third, there's early attachment or the wake-up call, basically when the dopamine high has declined and oxytocin takes over. This wake-up call stage is where reality sets in and we begin to see the faults, flaws, and differences. Whereas before we always accommodated the other, these differences and imperfections can lead to friction, anger, resentment, insecurity, controlling, and so on. There can be power struggles that tear the couple apart, seething sentiments that strangle the relationship, or the clearer picture can bring understanding, compromise, and acceptance. And so some frame this turning point as the fourth stage, commitment, the decision to work through these issues for better and for worse, intending to see the benefits of a long-term, long-lasting relationship that goes deeper than infatuation or toleration. It tends to occur around two years as they picture themselves with their partner into the far future, while always contemplating their needs and interests in the present. Such a mutual commitment creates the willingness to invest into and work upon the relationship leading to our fifth stage, stability, where the couple now sees each other more clearly, but the annoyances become endearing quirks that they are privileged to know. Having worked through their differences, they no longer try to control or change the other, but instead respect their boundaries and feel completely comfortable with one another. The pitfall of this comfort is that you begin to take each other for granted. Sixth is the inevitable crisis. As comfort allows the couple to drift apart, it's inevitable that there will be a big test of the relationship, a fork in the road that either solidifies the relationship or makes it fall apart. This crisis is a test of commitment, compromise, communication, and whether they can face and overcome challenges together. If they can and they do, the assurance of that, the experience of that, the wisdom of that brings them to the last stage. Seventh, deep attachment, or some call it the bliss stage. Having had a crisis but knowing you can work through it and overcome anything brings security and calm. It's a lifetime of unconditional love, support, and affirmation. Being with the other person is their best self, and as a couple, they start to integrate that with the world. Again, these aren't absolute, but you can see how these may map onto Lois and Clark or Superman and the world. With Lois, we can see how the films were meant to take us to commitment. I'll take that as a yes. What? The Ring. In Man of Steel, we see the appreciation and the infatuation. It starts when he saves her life with his own two hands, a calm voice, and supernatural power. Lois notices the man who saved her at the expense of his secrecy before a world-renowned journalist, and she recovers without conditions on her freedom from him. So she seeks him out, and over the course of weeks, finds a trail of heroics and the sacrifice of home 
to do it. She meets him to tell his story, and he isn't afraid or intimidated or threatened. Instead, he shares his most intimate pain and personal reasons for privacy. He asks her for advice, and she feels and is trusted. She keeps that trust, even when she's snatched up by the government, but with the whole world threatened. He shows up just to see and talk with her face to face. He's considerate, strong, honorable, and a little funny. And he smiles. Outside, he thanks her. Her trust made all the difference and reaches out to hold her hand and look her in the eyes. Until, interrupted by the Kryptonians, he shows that he considers her his equal to make first contact with Zod and to secure the command key secretly. She has a harrowing time on the Black Zero that ends with her falling through the sky, only to be rescued, arms around him tightly, flying gently to the ground. After she rescued him with the command key, she's looking directly into his eyes and immediately confesses and is immediately forgiven. Another moment interrupted. Smallville, Metropolis, the World Engine, the Black Zero. She's falling through the sky again in a torrent of chaos and alien lightning. And then he's there again, rescued, arms around him tightly, flying gently down after she helped rescue the world with the phantom drive. It echoes the moment interrupted earlier, and with life so fleeting, fragile, and funny, heart pounding a million miles an hour, adrenaline surging, her breath barely back, they both can't help but kiss, refusing to let that moment pass or be interrupted until of course it is. Framed this way, we can see how she appreciated him and how her affections grew. And for Clark, it was much the same. After he saves Lois, he's hit with life-changing information about himself, his people, where he came from, and why. And beyond all his answers, he's suddenly given the gift of flight, which is transformative. Nonetheless, even on that high, he has to wonder what she'll write about him. Will she fear and hate him, spread that in her writing, and affirm the need for continued secrecy? But when he reads it, his heart has to leap. She wasn't afraid. She wanted to meet. He'd read her work and come to know her as brave, determined, and honest. She wasn't afraid. He'd follow her work and see her tenacity as she closed in on his hometown, and he'd be tempted to send her off the trail, but he wants her to find him. She could have already written an expose if she was only after the story. She doesn't. She seems to want to meet him too, and so they do. And then he takes a leap of faith. Jorel told him he was meant to be before the world. Jonathan told him he would change it. And here was somebody who wasn't afraid to tell his story. After all that waiting, maybe now was that time. But to give informed advice, she had to know the cost already paid. To understand that, having his story told had to be weighed against Jonathan's caution and sacrifice for more time. He is so vulnerable and tells his most heartbreaking story the one that means the most to him, that makes him who he is, the one that has defined him for the last decade of his life. He has literally just learned about incredible powers and an ancient alien civilization, but that isn't the story to him or to her. It is a more intimate one about himself, hardship, and the world ready to reject him. And the amazing thing is that she understands. She doesn't press him to publish today or threaten him to publish tomorrow. She doesn't grill him on distant galaxies or flood him with questions about powers and spaceships. She sees him as a person, accepts his answer, and understands him. She's a friend. When he talks about her to his mom, he can't help but smile. A reporter of all people knows the truth, and he's at peace, calm, and happy. You 
are not alone. He might just be a little in love. After Zod's ultimatum, Clark has a big decision to make. Things to think about, and he needs time. After the ultimatum, it would be understandable if Lois went right to the authorities. The government, swarming Smallville to sequester him and bring him in. But no one comes, and Clark knows Lois has trusted him, kept his secret even in these extraordinary circumstances. After he visits with Father Leone and makes his decision, he searches for Lois and finds out that she's been detained by the government, and she still didn't give him up. Now, she really means something to him. Their interview has chemistry, and he makes his interest known. Saying so, holding hands, looking deeply. <laughs> and you get the idea. In a world where no one needs an excuse to kiss, there is more than enough to explain an attraction and relationship. Over the next two years, you could imagine the euphoria, how they seem like a match made in heaven. She's more worldly and urban, and he's down to earth. She runs headlong into conflict and danger. He's more cautious and reserved. She's confrontational, and he's polite. She finds trouble, and he solves it when he can. They challenge each other to experience and see things differently. And you've got to imagine that Clark is as happy, confident, and fulfilled as he's ever been, with a higher calling, a stable home, a meaningful job, and a loving partner. And you've got to think that Lois is more than happy with that as well. Of course, the filmmakers carefully time out the events of BVS to allow the background machinations to occur, but also for the relationship to take its natural course. From infatuation to when reality sets in. When you start to ask all the questions that you silenced or excused before. Could they ever go public, and if so, which side of the relationship? Was marriage on the table, or kids in the cards? Could they even have kids? Did they even want kids? Their differences aren't quite so delightful. She's more worldly and jet-setting, but Clark's mom is still waiting tables. It's hard to swallow the let-them-eat-cake-beat as the way things are. She runs headlong into danger. She's confrontational and finds trouble. She could die, and he'd have to save her. And once they experience that, Lois starts to question the cost. Can the Superman save be the symbol of hope the world needs if he puts Lois first out of love? As longtime fans, it's easy to assume that the answer is yes, but that's in a fictional context where a central character survives by virtue of their prominence more than the practical reality of Lois Lane living through everything that she has. At the same time, the mythos has many of the starkest illustrations of the impact the loss of Lois Lane has on Superman. In reality, there may be times when the two are incompatible, in tension, or in conflict. And after the bloodshed in Africa, Lois honestly asks if it's possible. The unspoken part of the question is whether the world may be better off, whether they'd be better off, breaking it off now, before a greater catastrophe happens. And so we've come to the wake-up call for Lois and Clark, and that echoes exactly the same stage with the world and the Superman. But before we move on to that, we have some good signs that this is a relationship that will flourish instead of fail. First is the fact that Lois expressed her concerns rather than let them build up as hidden worries or resentment. Second is the fact that Clark affirms his desire to keep her close with a romantic gesture. 
He doesn't stay defensive. He doesn't let them drift apart. He actively and consciously pulls them together. Then third, there is no controlling. No one levels an ultimatum, a demand for change, or tries to coerce the other. Now that said, Clark does deflect the question, and they don't hash it out. And over the course of the next few events, they are physically separated and their communication suffers. Clark becomes closed off and inaccessible. Neither are sharing their investigations with the other or the underlying worries that they represent. And when they finally meet face to face again, it's like they're in two different conversations. No couple is picture perfect. Nothing in Superman's vast array of superpowers allows him to shortcut the work it takes to have a good and healthy relationship. With all the risk and pain, concerns and issues, is it worth working through? So this is the question that BVS presents to the Superman. The question has no weight in a romantic comedy, where the outcome is inevitable, and the answer is obvious, while infatuated like a lovesick teen from Verona. The question is only actually meaningful in a world of real consequences after the faults, flaws, and issues begin to show, no longer blind, and doubts begin to rise, and questions begin to abound. The filmmakers time their tale to tell the story of consequence, the challenge of real-world conflict resolution rather than the rosy honeymoon period that is merely a facade, the suspension of negative judgment through the suspension of disbelief. So, a common criticism is that if there was a honeymoon period between Superman and the world, it was the obligation of the filmmakers to show it that would make us sympathetic to Superman, appreciate him, and regret his death all the more. And of course it would. That's exactly why they didn't show it. I think my bias towards Superman is obvious. So early on, I would argue that BVS was a Superman movie featuring Batman. I've also said that BVS was meant as an unbiased debate between their outlooks. But I think my position has evolved since then. I still consider it a Superman film, being rich in themes, characterization, world building, enemies, and ideas all surrounding Superman. But I believe now that Batman is the protagonist, and that the film puts its thumb on the scale to understand Batman's point of view more than Superman's intentionally. Objectively, Superman is at an advantage, with most of the world behind him, the mythos establishing his goodness, and the prior film showing his character already. With all things being equal, Batman is going after a hero and in the wrong. We don't know him, and he's taking a minority position. And if we were also shown Superman during the honeymoon, it would be all over for Batman. We would fall into the trap of first impressions and snap judgments, which we'll talk about next episode, affirming exactly the opposite of what the filmmakers were trying to do. Like assuming that your picture of your partner during the puppy love period is entirely accurate forever onwards. To affirm the infatuation would be to say that our biases and prejudices, first impressions and judgments are the way we ought to look at the world and expect everything to line up accordingly. No, instead, the filmmakers challenged us with Clark during a period of conflict and confusion, rather than of confidence and calm. And they give us Bruce's perspective much more, so that we have a greater understanding of his insane position. The point is to challenge expectations, to understand that even Superman has human limits in his psychology, his mind, his thoughts, emotions, and relationships, and understand how even the Batman can 
come to hate him. And again, they can't do that with a Superman that is obviously right and a Batman that is clearly wrong. Not when the audience's emotions are so easily plied, until they understand that this is a work meant to be actively engaged and interpreted, not passively received as a series of shallow impressions. Sympathy is easily rendered. Even a 30-second TV spot can summon the sensation. To me, it seems like the filmmakers were trying to get into the much more complicated headspace of the Batman, and that meant holding back those stereotypical Superman shots of inspiration and awe, or else we'd never understand Bruce's perspective. We might acknowledge it as a shallow, predictable plot point, but we couldn't share his psychology. We don't get to see Superman shine because Bruce doesn't see Superman shine. Even though there's objective proof of all the actions and heroics, the articles, news stories, the Metro map peppered with Superman sightings, but with Bruce as our protagonist, we are meant to be in his head most of the time. We see his visions, dreams, and nightmares. We see his indifference to saving cats out of trees. And we see fire fall from the sky from his perspective. To the extent that Clark is shown, again, it is to challenge our perceptions, not enforce preconception. Clark deals with questions and criticisms, so he himself is filled with questions. And that means that the impressionable audience is left feeling questions and criticisms about the Superman as well. And if we question our assumptions, of inherent goodness, of steadfast confidence, of always enduring hope, then maybe, just maybe, Bruce is right. And so we're shown the indifferent god raining fire from the sky, the murderous tyrant who has scorched the earth, the bully who lays down an ultimatum like the law while remaining above it, and finally, the walking catastrophe that brings about the bombing of Capitol Hill. All of this is the filmmakers intentionally placing their thumb on the scale in favor of Batman's perspective to show how a hero can go wrong with the hope and the understanding that people would walk away, reflect, and understand that it was wrong. Instead, the tragedy is that the movie is so reflective of our nature that many have simply absorbed these warped impressions as the truth and in turn expressed them in ever-increasingly warped ways. One of the maddeningly hilarious criticisms is that Bruce should have looked into Superman more and seen that he was a hero, human, heroic, and had a mother too. Sure, yes, of course, but the point is that he didn't, and the irony is that the critic didn't. If the critic had extended the same degree of interest and investigation of actual empathy into Bruce or Clark as they are criticizing Bruce for lacking, it would be self-evident why somebody in that state would be willfully blind to Clark's humanity. No hunter tries to figure out their prey's mother's name, just as no critic seeks out challenging nuance or merit from a work that they've already decided to trash. Similarly, all of the objective facts are there for you to perceive, receive, and accept Clark's character humanity and heroism. But if you are as callous as Bruce, you can't, won't, and don't see it. Of course, the hope and the message of the film is that there is redemption for Bruce as there is for the critic. <laughs> as someone who has come to love this movie, it's psychological fractals like this that amaze me that this movie was ever conceived of and made, that a film can literally cause and illustrate the very same issues it contains. <laughs> Incredible. Truly amazing. 
And I've completely gone off topic again, haven't I? (laughs) But this is good. I can use this. I can use this. So we've walked through a few perspectives, shown Lois falling for Clark and Clark falling for Lois and the Batman falling into a headspace that made Superman his prey. See that? I tied it together, right? (laughs) So the world is another sort of character in this story and its mouthpiece is the media. So we can look to the media for the world's perspective. Two episodes from now, we'll talk about high and low cost context cultures and the role of implication and honesty. But for the sake of argument, let's take most of what was published to the public media as an honest attempt to communicate. The press plus Senator Finch is mainly what we're talking about. It's clear that there was euphoria between the BZE and BVS. I've covered the evidence repeatedly in the past, but the top of the shortlist is the monument at Heroes Park, Perry pointing to the previous love affair, and Senator Finch saying that they've all been so caught up in what he can do. Again, there's a lot more evidence, but you can listen to earlier episodes on that. Now that we're two years on, and with Lex Luthor instigating things behind the scenes, reality starts to set in, and the implications of the Superman come under scrutiny. The differences come out. Before hailed as a heavenly savior, now the emphasis is alien and xenophobia. The world is only too loud and certain in its speech, while Superman is steadfastly silent throughout. And of course, there is the difference in power and mortality, which make men tremble and afraid. Their respective flaws come to light. Superman has always saved the innocent from accident, yet now the world is exhibiting undeserving. Fear, hatred, mob mentality, and hypocrisy. Death by human will and intention in Nairobi and in Washington. Meanwhile, the world looks at an unchecked God, unaccountable, above the law, beyond borders, unstoppable, unanswerable, reckless, as a unilateral actor, able to spark international incidents as an enemy combatant. Why does he get to decide who lives and who dies? And by whose will does he act? Friction appears where it wasn't before. The Daily Planet prints puff pieces for his smallest good deed. And now they publish, promote, and proliferate the position of a protester against him. Superman would speak with Swanwick and say his piece before, but not anymore. Not after their illegal action in the desert and silent refusal to exonerate him showed that their commitment to covert secrecy was more important than truth or justice. Unlike Lois, who stood by his side, Swanwick leaves him out to dry, and it's left to Lois to bridge that divide. Anger and resentment? Get in line! Keith, Bruce, Lex, and a mob of angry protesters come out of the woodwork after the infatuation ends. They were always there, seething in anger, building in resentment, but unable to act until the honeymoon high had worn off. Meanwhile, Clark is obviously frustrated with the state of affairs as well. Despite his debut, he feels unknown and misunderstood. While he hears the criticism, it can be hard to take, and he resents it when it seems like the Batman is intentionally egregious, yet embraced by his constituents in a way that Clark doesn't feel right now. It may be fair to say that Clark takes some of that out on Batman, exploiting the Superman when Clark Kent can't get his way with his story. The instability and hostility of relationship with the world becomes a fear and feeling of insecurity. He's worried about Lois dying or leaving him for the sake of the Superman, but he's worried that the Superman is being torn down, torn apart, dissected until there's nothing left, the meaning and the legacy lost. It was never real to begin with. The people would rather shine Batman's light into the sky than see the Superman in that domain. If the reputation withers, how can he be a symbol of hope or lead anyone to the sun? You could suggest the narrative that Clark makes grand gestures to reaffirm his desire to help 
in the montage of heroics, and in agreeing to attend the Senate hearing. I personally wouldn't. I think he has some less neurotic reasons to do so. But you could see someone insecure trying to win back affection and make a big statement or gesture. Meanwhile, the pundits hotly debate the institutional instability the Superman represents, a threat to religion, science, sovereignty, politics, and law. Finch is frightened at his unclear agenda. Does he operate by his will or ours? And of course, Lex and Bruce magnify the risk in their minds until the Superman's mere existence is absolutely apocalyptic. A tyrant that enslaves, a destroyer who burns it all down, a power that wipes out the human race. Insecurity breeds the fear of all of these things and more, and so to reclaim a sense of security, often a response in a relationship, is a power struggle over control, demands, ultimatums, threats, and tragically, sometimes force or abuse. In the world, the government is actually among the most benign. Senator Finch is simply asking to speak with Superman. Others, like protesters, use their speech to try to drive Superman out and away. One wonders what happens if they actually get their wish and Superman aligns himself with another nation in response. Lex and Bruce collectively have plans to coerce compliance from Superman, make him kneel, make him fight, and have him kill or be killed. A certain degree of insecurity is sensible given the circumstances. Senator Finch is probably right to at least ask if we parallel this with a romantic relationship. If parameters and boundaries aren't set or made clear, insecurity can fester, making you unsure if your relationship is open, serious, evolving, or what. Even after two years, the other person is free to go off with others, break up, move away, or whatever. In a relationship, culture, morality, emotional bonds, and social norms create expectations and duties that limit such arbitrary exercises of free will, even if those boundaries remain unspoken. But even those have eroded some of late. For example, ghosting has become a prevalent means of coping the dissolution of a relationship rather than owning your decision. This probably won't come as much of a surprise, but breaking up with someone is hard. There's the rejection, the tears, the possible shouting, and if nothing else, it's just really awkward. Maybe that's why, for better or worse, some people decide a proper breakup isn't worth it. Instead, they choose to just disappear. In other words, they ghost. Ghosting is when someone terminates a relationship by ending communications abruptly and without explanation. Psychologists have started to study it. Recently, they've begun investigating why people do this, and their results suggest that at least some of it might have to do with how people view relationships in general. In a 2018 study that polled almost 750 people, 23% of participants reported being ghosted by a romantic partner, and almost 40% reported being ghosted by a friend. Studies have even found that people ghost employers or potential employers by not responding to offers or by not showing up for work or interviews. Researchers have suggested that how you feel about ghosting could be based on something more fundamental, how you think about relationships more broadly. Research on relationship theories covers two types of beliefs, destiny and growth. If you're a stronger believer in destiny, it means you think that the outcome of a relationship is more set in stone. It's either going to work out or it's not. This is associated with a fixed mindset, and if you think like this, you might believe that you have a soulmate, someone who is fundamentally a perfect match. On the other hand, if you're a stronger believer in growth, it means you think relationships can grow over time. If you think like this, you probably believe that all relationship hurdles can eventually be overcome. In that 2018 study I mentioned earlier, the researchers didn't just look at how frequently people ghosted. They 
also asked participants about their relationship beliefs, and they found that stronger destiny beliefs led to more positive views toward ghosting. More specifically, when compared to people with weaker destiny beliefs, this group was about 63% more likely to say that ghosting was an acceptable way to end a long-term relationship. Those with stronger growth beliefs tended to say the opposite. This may have happened because people with stronger destiny beliefs are often quicker to end a relationship when they don't think it's a good fit. In general, we can probably agree that ghosting isn't the best way to handle a serious breakup, mostly because we know how romantic relationships work. But in terms of this Superman thing, there are no norms, but for the ones that they invent together. So no one, not even he, knows what the expectations are or should be. After a harrowing debut and two years of heroism, and when that begins to become difficult and resentful, maybe the right and proper thing to do is retire and quit. As we raised earlier, that's a common occurrence across the superhero mythos, and in comic book movies especially. In ordinary civil service, it's entirely acceptable that you may stop after a tour of duty, an especially violent law enforcement encounter, or after a dangerous fire. Despite the risks to first responders, their average life expectancy and mortality rate is almost the same as non-emergency workers. Who says Superman must be? As we pointed out earlier, Clark's original M.O. was to ghost after every rescue, and he could do it again if he still wanted to help without being burdened by the Superman. Set aside the preconception that the Superman is a given and never-ending. Retiring early would be an entirely understandable action, and a rational expectation by a world that doesn't know the rules. But how can they govern around him if he may just up and leave? or begin to act unilaterally in his own interests. Imagine coordinating delicate diplomatic arrangements, only to have him blow through them as if he were acting on behalf of national interests. Imagine if their anti-extraterrestrial incursion protocols are all reliant on him, and he just doesn't show. How can they build policy without any assurances? You could prepare an entire nuclear arsenal only to have him throw it into the sun. Fair enough, but with forewarning, you might have spent the funds elsewhere. You could elect an executive that Superman can't help but lobotomize or vaporize. These seem improbable, unlikely, uncharacteristic. It's not that he would, but without boundaries and commitments, he could and he might. So I don't fault Finch for asking for accountability, at least not without hearing her response if she didn't like the answer. If it were a romantic relationship, it's completely reasonable that after two years, if not before, you ask your partner if you will be exclusive or are aiming for engagement, marriage, or beyond. Not that your partner is about to run away with someone else and leave you, but they could, and they might. In any healthy relationship, boundaries must be set and consented to, either by prescription, policy, priors like culture, or by the participants themselves. A lack of boundaries creates insecurity, which can bubble up as an overly critical attitude, finding every flaw, turning everything into fault, looking for blame, and trying to criticize them within an inch of their life. It's an unhealthy way to get what they're actually looking for. Control, cause, certainty, and communication. They use it for control. The flaws act as moral leverage over the other for them to fix themselves for the relationship or they use it for cause they want out of the relationship and all these issues is the excuse they want certainty and all this nitpicking is a paltry substitution for the security of feeling not at fault and they desire communication. Unable to express and converse, the criticism becomes the only conversation. If allowed to become a toxic brew, it's understood why one may want out or to ghost away. 
and it comes to a moment of choice to count the cost or make a commitment to work through all these issues. Commitment creates an environment where we're all free to fail and it gives us the structure to deal with it. It allows us to take risks, grow, and get to the heights that are only possible when we're all in. As a bittersweet reminder of that possibility, recall when Warner Brothers was all in on a movie slate and a vision for the future. And even if you were to stumble or to fall, you could rely on the commitment to the eventual direction agreed upon. But instead, when commitment is broken or lost, when insecurity sets in because those in charge keep changing and can't commit, you can see the chaos and inability to get past a certain level, the unwillingness to take big swings, experiment, or take risks. As a counterexample, you can look to Superman in the comics and how he's flourished over the ages due to DC's overall commitment to the character. Whether he's the most popular or trendy at the time, DC has made a commitment to keeping Superman as the cornerstone of their universe. And that means even when he falters or fails to connect, they keep trying, keep experimenting, keep iterating and evolving, unwilling to let Superman sit in the corner collecting dust to become a one-dimensional mascot that everyone recognizes but that no one actually knows. Accordingly, he still gets great talent, great stories, and every creative person has a Superman story inside of them waiting to be worked on and put out. Not really because of merit or utility, but because of the beauty of commitment. Superman can't solve this alone. It's the collective consciousness, a social contract that gives him his stature. And that means a market of ideas, discussion, debate, and disagreement, navigating a relationship with all the complexities and issues raised above. It may seem easier to just go independent, do nothing to build bridges, work through issues, or make commitments. Just go at it alone and do it yourself. But how's that working out for most of us? Seeing the country go into a ditch, a social ditch. It was about loss of connection. It was about hyper-individualism. It was an obsessive concern for the meritocracy. We've had 60 years of individualism in this country, and we sort of run out the string on that one. We've weakened the connections between us. 35% of Americans over 45 are chronically lonely. 50% of Americans say no one knows them well. In 1970, married couples entertained friends in their home on average 15 times a year. Now it's eight times. Only 8% of Americans say they have meaningful conversations with their neighbors. The fastest-growing political party is unaffiliated. The fastest-growing religious movement is unaffiliated. Since 1999, suicide rates have shot up by 30%. Among those 7 to 17, suicide rates among girls have shot up 70%. 45,000 Americans kill themselves each year, and suicide is a proxy for loneliness. 72,000 die from opiate addictions, and that's just slow-motion suicide. Twice as many deaths every year from these deaths of despair than the entire Vietnam War. American lifespan is declining, not rising. Distrust of each other and our institutions. Earlier generation, 75% of Americans said they trusted their institutions, including the media. Now we're down to less than 20%. Distrust of each other. If you ask people a generation ago, do you trust the people around you? 60% said yes. Now it's 32% who say my neighbors are trustworthy and only 19% of millennials. The younger you go, the more distrustful they are. And as Bob Putnam of Harvard says, that's not a perception, that's reality. That's because the least trustworthy they are. Sort of a spiritual or psychological crisis. It's amazing to me, given all we know, that mental health problems are on the increase, not the decrease, that depression rates are skyrocketing, that if you go to any college, mental health facilities are overwhelmed. David Brooks on the symptoms of individualism not tempered by community and connection. The following clips comes from a 2018 study on the outbreak of a loneliness epidemic. A new study from Cigna finds that more than half of Americans said they always or sometimes feel that no one knows them well. More than half say they sometimes or always felt like the people around them are not necessarily with them. Two out of five said they feel like they lack companionship, that their relationships are not meaningful, and that they are isolated from 
others. And it seems you are more likely to show signs of deeper loneliness the younger you are. Some places are taking this very seriously. The United Kingdom has appointed a minister of loneliness out of concern for how this can affect health and wellness. Jean Twenge, a psychology professor at San Diego State University, despite what we may think about ourselves, feeling lonely is not just in your head. This is not just something that weak people go through, that mentally unstable people go through. This is part of the human experience that should be taken seriously, right? Exactly. Needing to be around others, needing a community, needing close relationships, that is the essence of being human. We are hardwired to need to be with other people. And when we're not, our alarm system is loneliness. And that lets us know, hey, there's a problem here. You're alone too much or don't feel connected enough. You don't have those close bonds with others that in an evolutionary sense, we needed to survive. So we know that we need other people. And it's not an individual problem that we have a lot of loneliness now. It's a pervasive cultural problem. This is clearly a problem that has a number of health officials worried, including at the highest levels of the United States government. Joining us is Dr. Vivek Morthy, the 19th U.S. Surgeon General, and his work focused in part on emotional well-being. Do you consider loneliness a public health issue? I do. When I was practicing medicine, I was surprised to find that the greatest pathology that I was seeing as a doctor was not heart disease or diabetes. It was, in fact, loneliness. Loneliness was driven by a lack of meaning, a lack of connection, and a lack of self-worth. And when I served as Surgeon General, I saw this again, too, in community after community that I visited. I found people telling stories about loneliness, whether they were struggling with addiction, whether they were new parents who were dealing with a new role that they were playing, or whether they were people in all manner of walks of life who were feeling that they were more and more connected, if you will, via technology, but less known by other people as to who they really were. Having authentic connections is an incredibly important part of our existence as human beings. And the more we look at the science behind it, we realize that those authentic connections are also very important for our health. How much, Dr. Morthy, do you find that health providers are equipped, are trained, or perhaps not, to recognize and deal with loneliness? Currently, loneliness is not a primary area of focus for doctors and nurses when they're training. And this is unfortunate because loneliness affects so many of the patients that we're caring for, but we're not really taught how to screen for it, how to deal with it once we detect it in our patients. That's something that I believe we have to change, especially as we learn more and more about how common loneliness is and how it affects our health. We've seen, for example, that loneliness is associated with a reduction in our lifespan that's similar to the reduction lifespan seen with smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's associated with an increased risk of heart disease, dementia, depression, anxiety, and a host of other medical conditions. Wait a minute, so, back, back up a second. I, you said that, that loneliness has, that research has shown a correlation between loneliness and the health impacts of smoking 15 cigarettes per day? That's right. Some of the same research has shown that the mortality impact of loneliness is in fact greater than the mortality impact of obesity. So think for a moment about how much effort and attention we spend on addressing smoking and obesity versus how much we are putting into addressing loneliness. There's, there's really no comparison, even though loneliness, it turns out, is an important health risk. On the road as Surgeon General, when I was visiting communities across the country, I found that this loneliness was prevalent everywhere I went, whether it was in big cities or small towns or small fishing villages in Alaska. And that's what led me to worry that this was an epidemic that was far and deeper and that affected far more people than we thought. When you combine that with the growing body of science around the impact of loneliness, science that's been driven in part by a Professor Holt Lundstedt, uh, who's on this conversation, and others, you start to see that we are recognizing that there are more impacts on health than we thought, you know, impacts on our longevity, increased risk for heart disease, dementia, depression, and anxiety, but also impacts that go well beyond health in terms of our productivity in the workplace, how children do in school, and even our ability to have dialogue at a public and community mm -hmm. level. It's really powerful to hear a former Surgeon General of the United States talk about this in terms of an epidemic 
epidemic. Why is it important to use that word? Well, we have used the word epidemic to refer to infectious diseases that have spread in populations. But what we see with loneliness is that it is impacting far more people than many of the infectious diseases that we have worried about in the past that we have termed epidemics. So, you know, this is an epidemic just by virtue of the sheer number of people that is impacting and how significantly it is spread in the population. And it's worth noting that this is not purely an American epidemic. This is an epidemic that's impacting countries all over the world. The United Kingdom, as you mentioned earlier, has appointed a minister to focus on loneliness. But many other countries are starting to wake up to the fact that as we have focused so much on technology and mobility and productivity in the workplace, we have lost sight of something that matters so deeply to our fundamental productivity and to our fundamental experience as human beings. And that's our connection to each other. Mm. Those episodes of loneliness are normal. What's more concerning is when we are feeling lonely on a frequent basis and when, very importantly, it's starting to affect how we function in the world. If you find yourself withdrawing even more from other people, which paradoxically is something that can happen with loneliness, if you find yourself feeling less engaged and enthused with your activity and your work in the world or your work at school if you're a student, if you find that you're craving connection but feel a sense of powerlessness, like you don't know how to build bridges of connection with other people, these are all signs that the loneliness you're experiencing uh, may be problematic for you. This issue is exacerbated by various forms of counterfeit connection, social media or tribalism, instead of the challenge of true connection. Professor Twenge, you were talking about survey research that began to spike upward in terms of loneliness counts in the last few years. Yeah, so that's among teens ages 13 to 18. And there was a sudden spike in loneliness around 2011 or 2012. And by 2015, 2016, those levels of loneliness among teens were at an all-time high. So more teens started to say that they felt lonely and felt left out. So between the millennial generation and then iGen, there was this sudden spike in loneliness around 2011 or 2012. So iGen is those born 1995 and later. They are the first generation to spend their entire adolescence with smartphones. And the period of 2011 or 2012 might be important because that happens to be the time when smartphones became common. That's when the percentage of Americans who owned a smartphone crossed 50%. I am a board-certified child psychiatrist. As teen pregnancy and teen substance use have been on the decline, teen anxiety disorders and teen suicide have been on the rise. It is the loss of social connectivity that has fueled loneliness among today's youth. Social identification is supposed to be their developmental hurdle. Instead, they're looking at pictures of their peers on social media in a facade of coolness and beauty while marinating in FOMO, fear of missing out. Here's uh, author Brene Brown in September. She's a social scientist and best-selling author on CBS This Morning talking about how, surprisingly, her research showed that the more we associated with people just like us, what she called living in echo chambers, the more lonely we are. We have built ideological bunkers. We are more likely now to live with, worship with, and go to school with people who are politically and ideologically like-minded. Mm-hmm. You would think a natural result of sorting ourselves into these factions would be closer ties, more connection. But as it turns out, as sorting grows, so does loneliness. So we're becoming more lonely as we're becoming more balkanized. That's because she says it's counterfeit intimacy, where the only thing we have in common is a common enemy. And yet that connection is challenging, makes it stigmatizing to admit a failure to connect. I think it is particularly acute among teens and young adults for a number of reasons. First, because those are the generations who grew up much more comfortable communicating with people virtually and online and just may not have as much experience talking to people in person. And that makes it even harder to take that initial step to reach out. There's also this idea 
which is really pervasive in our culture, especially among iGeners and millennials, that if you need somebody else and if you want that emotional connection, that you're weak, that you're, some people call it being thirsty, that that's pathetic to need other people. I think we have to have much more recognition of the fact that we're hardwired to be with other people and have those emotional connections. And that does not make you weak. It makes you human. Circumstances in life, whether they're economic or, or geographic circumstances, as well as personality traits, can have an impact on whether you tend to loneliness or not. I say this in part from very personal experience. And as a child, I was really quite lonely and during elementary school. And it was not because I didn't want to engage with other people. It was because I had a very shy personality and I found it hard to reach out. Now, interestingly, I've actually never told my family that I was lonely when I was a child. And I never told them at the time because I felt ashamed. I felt that admitting I was lonely was admitting that I was not worthy of being loved. And who wants to feel that way or admit that to someone else? And so I think that there are certain personality types and certain circumstances, whether it's geographic isolation or whether it's economic circumstances that can lead people to be disconnected. People who were shy would feel embarrassed about the fact that they were naturally outside of things and that they felt so bad about being lonely that they would come to us in the office and instead of talking about the loneliness, they would talk about what they thought their diagnosis was in the way of anxiety or depression. And so we were always talking around the issue of loneliness because people were embarrassed about it and we thought we should bring it out of the closet. So tell us how loneliness and social isolation drive mental health problems. Well, you know, when people feel lonely, even if they are surrounded by people or they are socially isolated, they don't have the company and sounding board of other people to regain perspective. So it's so easy to lose perspective. And when you lose perspective, you start to be in a kind of twilight zone where you can't quite grab hold of what's really happening. So we, as a species, need other people to help us regain perspective. And therapy frequently works by just that method of once you talk to somebody, you start to have a better feeling about your inner thoughts because you've told them to somebody. Talk about the stigma, Dr. Murthy, of social isolation and loneliness. It's a term that we use often to talk about mental health care generally, but talk about the stigma of loneliness. And I think there is a real stigma around loneliness where people don't feel comfortable admitting they're alone. That's why I think we also have to take many of the reported numbers with a grain of salt and recognize that they are likely, in fact, underreporting the true prevalence of loneliness. But the truth is, what many people feel when they admit that they're alone is what I felt when I was a child, contemplating talking to my parents about being alone. They, they worry that they're admitting they're not worthy of being loved. While the solution to loneliness is in part building meaningful connections with other people, that starts with us being able to have a strong, meaningful connection with ourselves. And what that means is having a sense of worth. It means accepting ourselves for who we are. You know, in my travels, both uh, before, during my term as Surgeon General and afterwards, I've spent a lot of time on college campuses and with high school students. And I have been repeatedly disheartened and concerned to see just how many young people walk around with a profoundly low sense of self-worth. And if you do not feel that you are worthy, why would you think anybody else would want to connect with you? So it's important that we recognize that part of the root of this is also ensuring that, especially from a young age, we are enabling our young people to accept themselves, to to develop a sense of self-worth, that they are, in fact, people who have fundamental value and that they are worthy of connecting with others. Perhaps unsurprisingly, relief is found in various forms of connection. So at the most basic level, we can ask them about their social support and try to understand whether they have people in their lives who know them, who they can confide in, who are there to support them. And what we'll find is, you might find initially that people are reluctant to talk about that, but over time, they'll often share whether what their social networks are like. And what's equally as important, they will know that their doctor cares about that aspect of their life. There are so many people who move through their work, whether they're doctors or nurses or whether patients coming to see them or people in workplaces all across America or kids in schools who feel profoundly lonely but don't feel like they can talk about that. 
they have to hide that part of who they are. As a clinician, you can help open the conversation with the patient, which can open the door to healing. Ironically, serving other people, helping other people can be a powerful uh, route through which we can help to reduce loneliness. If we really want to create a more connected society, we have to build our society on a culture that's based on the understanding that we value each other, that every life does, in fact, have significance and worth. And that means that we have to be there to support each other, whether they're our family members or not. We tend to live in a society that's based on a narrative of rugged individualism that tells us that success is what you make of your own life. And that is really only partially true. The truth of human existence and evolution is that we are interdependent creatures. All of us are going to feel lonely and disconnected at times. And when we are disconnected, we are more vulnerable, not just to illness, but to other challenges as well. And so the real question is, how can we create a society where people are more invested in each other, where we're there for each other, and we recognize that we need to have other people's backs just as they need to have ours? Scaling programs in our communities that actually work to address loneliness. But I think as individuals, there are things that we can do as individuals that can help us address loneliness. Number one, we can draw boundaries around our use of social media and technology more broadly and create some sacred spaces just for us to spend time with other people. The second thing we can do is we can help other people, where even though one may feel lonely by reaching out and helping others, you help create a mutually reaffirming experience that helps both people feel less lonely. And lastly, I think it's very important to appreciate yourself, help others, and spend real time with those you love. So why do I bring this up? As you heard, this epidemic came just before the release of Man of Steel, which addressed a real-world need by exposing the plight of loneliness and showing that there was hope for meaning, worth, identity, and connection. This portrayal has its critics who call him weak and wrong because he feared the rejection of the world, that instead Clark should just suck it up and do whatever, regardless of everyone else. Yet that's not real psychology. In the real world, rejection and hatred hurts. I didn't pull the clip, but it's well established that isolation and rejection is actually received by the nervous system the same as physical pain. The rejection is all the worst when you're doing your best, pouring your heart out, and passionate about something you sincerely believe in. When that gets spat on, rejected, refused, and criticized, it's no small thing. But Man of Steel shows a Superman who's experienced all that, feels that, and still persists. Not in some unstoppable ascent, completely immune to anything, but in fits and starts, stumbling and falling as any of us would with the same human psychology. Because as you heard, who needs a Superman? Today, it isn't the popular high school quarterback with the redhead girlfriend and two perfect parents. We've already had that Superman. Sure, the football field teaches leadership, control, strategy, teamwork, tactics, and tenacity, but it's not the best model of loneliness. Do we really need Superman to tell us that if you're well-adjusted, have happy living parents, an ideal high school experience, popularity, friends, and so on, that you might go on to be happy, successful, and without dysfunction? Even if the myth were true, it's not attainable, but entirely an accident of circumstance and birth. No. What story do we need now? Who? needs a Superman. The people who need rescue, who need hope, who need strength. People who need to understand that they can overcome alienation, exile, being out of place, lost, or without meaning. People who don't know what their destiny is, don't know what their power is, don't know who to trust, what to do, and what their role is. Superman can and does provide guidance on these questions as a point of reflection, and he provides it within the mythos. This is not a radically new reading of Superman. We said it last episode from his 
first costumed caption, Superman came to champion the oppressed, to help those in need. The Superman was conceived of by creators who had been bullied and marginalized and powerless to prevent the tragic death of a father. Is it at all a stretch to imagine that Superman was here for the lonely, the bookish, unpopular, and other? Is it really an imposition by the filmmakers or a valid interpretation? The Last Son, Strange Visitor, a fortress of solitude, and an orphan again and again. In the early days of the JLA, Superman was somewhat aloof and hard to reach, a solo act compared to the dynamic duo. We all contain multitudes, we all have different facets of our personality, which show in different situations and stages of our lives. As I've said before, there are many times when the intention of the teller is to put an emphasis on an aspect, in order to communicate something larger. In this particular narrative, it's obvious that the filmmakers wanted to talk about the strange visitor, instead of or before for the popular public paragon to a society suffering from loneliness, they wanted to talk about the orphan, the immigrant, and the otherworldly outsider. As Snyder writes in his introduction to the art book, this is a Superman forced to walk the earth alone. Here, he is called an alien, an orphan, cipher and ghost, unseen, misunderstood. The word alone turns up 12 times in the text. Why am I so different from them? So I'm alone. His isolation and loneliness is in the stress on the secret, a nomadic shuffle between secret identities and broken bonds to all eyes of the world turning upon him in response to the ultimatum. And it's built into the finale, whereby Stopping Zod demands that he destroy his biological father's ghost, give up the ship by which he came, banish all traces of his culture and people to the Phantom Zone, and makes himself an utterly alone alien, the last son of Krypton, with his own two hands. It is a story created to cater to our contemporary condition. As Snyder writes, quote, Those sometimes overwhelming difficulties we each struggle to reconcile as we grow, especially throughout our youth, end quote. You've heard it said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the outcasts. Superman. Friend of the forgotten. And this isn't even getting into BVS. There is a Superman for everyone, but how can you fault a Superman who's here for such a real-world need? <laughs> I mean, it's easy. My entire show is called Answers because finding fault is easy. <laughs> A criticism that I want to address is the accusation that it's wrong to use Superman this way. That it's both too real and not real enough. It's too real because the critic comes at the film expecting escapism. Life is too hard, so the film should help us forget for a moment. At the same time, the critic claims that it's not real enough, because these issues are too deep and complicated to be covered by a comic book character. That if they wanted to delve into social issues, psychology, philosophy, or science, they can go get a documentary or read a book. And I won't say that these arguments are entirely without merit. There is value in escapism, as there is in diving deep. But I disagree, because the importance of these ideas is why Superman is the perfect vehicle. There's an even deeper rewiring happening at the cultural level. I'm afraid that we're kind of losing our cultural memory. This algorithmic library changes so often and is so biased toward getting us to watch new stuff that it has the opposite effect of an old-fashioned library. It doesn't build cultural memory. 
it destroys it. I just am not a big fan of cultural amnesia. I don't like it, and increasingly I see it more and more. For example, there was an article about horror movies not too long ago that was saying that such and such a recent horror movie was a revolutionary step forward for the genre because it dealt with grief. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, anybody who knows anything about horror movies, even in a cursory way, knows that this movie that came out this month is not the first horror film to deal with grief. And it is only in a culture in which we are not only unaware of the history of an art form, but encouraged to be ignorant of it, that somebody can make a claim like that. You know, that an editor can let it pass and that it can be published. And I see it happening time and time again. If the average person goes to the theater four times a year, barely any films can claim an opportunity to make a cultural impact. Yet Superman and Batman are blockbuster headliners. Not only are they likely to claim one of those four spots, but they are evergreen properties that will be played for decades to come because the property persists as a pillar of collective culture, lacking touchstones of commonly experienced culture the nearly century-old superhero is one of the last best chances at affecting lasting influence. This is part of the reason why representation in superhero films is an issue magnified many more times than just any other movie. If this is going to get a lot of eyeballs in the here and now, and across the ages, then I can't fault the filmmakers for taking a big swing at big ideas, culture, literature, history, philosophy, politics, psychology, science, and so on. I have to admire and ambition beyond a few hours of escapism against a lifetime of provoking thought. Of course, these can't and won't be exhaustive or complete, but that isn't the point. The world is made just a little bit better for every boy that picks up Plato because Clark did, or the girl who begins her journey into philosophy through the problem of evil, or those who learn to temper their judgments with time, understanding, and common ground. Our mothers have the same name. Or, as we've explored here, people who feel lost, alone, or are dealing with mental health see how to grapple and go on in a way that doesn't sugarcoat the journey so that they can endure and find their way out as well. This is a Superman for those who need him. The lonely, outcast, marginalized, misunderstood, isolated, and different, which is all of us at times. The pain and the problems, issues, and challenges that he struggles with, we all struggle with. Superman is a hero that takes on the banality of of human mental health. Not made colorful, cartoonish, or exotic, but the everyday issues that affect us all. That there is nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to hide, no apologies if you suffer from these issues. And that there is hope. If even Superman has these human issues and became a great hero, you can too. Superman addresses them with tools that transcend the page or screen. Hope, growth, service, and love. Conversely, if the only solution to mental health is to already be invincible, to already have a perfect childhood, to be a paragon of perfection, then none of us have hope. None of us can hope to achieve that standard and all fall short. We may as well be damned to our issues and our problems. Instead of the hero already there, the filmmakers plot out a path to take, one that those who need can replicate. So let's do that. Time to step back from the problems and look at one proposed path. David Brooks is a journalist and author who writes for the New York Times, is a commentator for the PBS NewsHour, NPR's All Considered, and NBC's Meet the Press. He teaches at Yale and recently published The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life. <laughs> In an ordinary episode, I guess I'd pull clips from a dozen different interviews, but I'm running long, so I'm just going to simply summarize and you can read the source material yourself. But to be honest, I'm probably going to end up inserting clips later anyways. I just can't help myself, so consider this an explanation or excuse for clips that aren't introduced or awkwardly inserted. Anyways... 
you could look at the book as a addendum or corrective to his earlier book on character. That book came from an individualistic view. At the time, it seemed self-evident to him that fulfillment came from merit, individual effort, and accomplishment. He was, after all, successful, prominent, and esteemed. But after a series of personal tragedies, Brooks found himself humbled and hurled down from the metaphorical mountaintop and deep into the valley. Upon reflection and experience, Brooks found that the next mountain to climb was about commitment and community. In broad strokes, the first mountain was all about building self, ego, and image, while the second mountain was about the dissolving of self for the sake of others. While he still stands by the value of character and self, as we heard earlier from the former Surgeon General, how self-worth facilitates connection, he believes that it is ultimately capped without a commitment to others. He chooses to highlight four benefits of commitment in particular, identity, purpose, freedom, and character. Identity is never formed alone, so who we commit to shapes and sets ourselves. Purpose comes from commitments which force us to focus on what we value, keep close, or discard. It exposes our deepest needs and desires. Freedom is both freedom from and freedom to. Restraints that limit and capacity creating ability. Any talent, art, or expertise demands commitment to to constraints, like practice, to create capacity, like performance. To quote Tim Keller, real freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones. Filmmakers, for example, revel in the limitations of the medium to create a higher expressions of their intentions. Finally, character comes from the hardship, sacrifice, discipline, and dedication that is formed in the light of our commitments. For example, when one becomes a parent, the commitment to the child will create a sacrificial character as one subordinates their will and wants to the needs and the desires of the child. So those are some of the benefits, but in practical terms, what should you commit to? The book is built around four categories of commitment, family or marriage, vocation or calling, faith or philosophy, and finally local community. These categories are to be committed to in earnest and in balance, or else you could be consumed by the commitment you choose, to the exclusion of the others. <laughs> I said no more clips, but here is therapist Esther Perez giving an example of placing too much emphasis on marriage alone. On the one hand, our need for security, for predictability, for safety, for dependability, for reliability, for permanence, all these anchoring, grounding experiences of our lives that we call home. But we also have an equally strong need, men and women, for adventure, for novelty, for mystery, for risk, for danger, for the unknown, for the unexpected, surprise, you get the gist, for journey, for travel. So reconciling our need for security and our need for adventure into one relationship, or what we today like to call a passionate marriage, used to be a contradiction in terms. We want our partner to still give us all these things, but in addition, I want you to be my best friend and my trusted confidant and my passionate lover to boot, and we live twice as long. <laughs> so we come to one person and we basically are asking them to give us what once an entire village used to provide. Give me belonging, give me identity, give me continuity, but give me transcendence and mystery and awe all in one. Give me comfort, give me edge, give me novelty, give me familiarity, give me predictability, give me surprise. And we think it's a given. <laughs>
So back to the four commitments. I'll give a brief summary of the categories and his insights, and then I'll show how they apply to Clark and BBS. For family, he focuses on marriage, because commitment to the child is almost self-evident in most cases. He walks through the stages as I did and gives practical tips along the way. His most interesting argument is that marriage should be a covenant instead of a contract, intimacy instead of just tolerance. Yeah, there's a style of marriage that's prevalent today. Sociologist Eli Frankel calls it's sort of a minimum marriage, the self-expressive marriage. That's two people. We care for each other and we both have our individual projects in life that we're going to do. And we're going to get married and we're going to help each other on our individual projects from time to time. But our life is still mostly about the individual projects. And I'm not sure marriage can survive that. I think marriage is tough and you have to be all in. Tim Keller says, when you're in marriage, you get into marriage and about two years in, you realize that the person you married, who you thought was completely perfect and completely wonderful, is actually kind of selfish. And as you're making this realization about her, she's making it about you. And so you have a decision to make. You can either have a truce marriage, in which case you won't talk about each other's flaws and you'll just have a kind of superficial marriage or you can decide you're going to deal with the flaws or you're going to realize that she seems kind of selfish but actually my own selfishness is the core problem here i'm going to be alert to my own selfishness and it's my own selfishness is the only selfishness i can control and keller says when you have two people who see their own selfishness as the core problem in the marriage and who are working on it then you have the makings of a great marriage but that requires you like to totally throw yourself into it to defeat the ego to serve the marriage and that's a tough thing to do but that is the essential moral challenge of marriage perel again on the relationship as economic exchange from an individual consumer perspective. So I travel the globe and what I'm noticing is that everywhere where romanticism has entered, there seems to be a crisis of desire. A crisis of desire as in owning the wanting. Desire as an expression of our individuality, of our free choice, of our preferences, of our identity. Desire that has become a central concept as part of modern love and individualistic societies. So desire is very much a concept of our society, of our culture today. You have a consumer society, you have a society that has the I in the center, and this I knows who she is and knows what he wants and is constantly urged to define it and to want more. And so what does that do? What's the we result? We crumble under the weight of expectations. <laughs> you know, we've never invested more in love and we've never divorced more in the name of love. We're not having a very nice result. That doesn't mean that when we had less expectations, marriages were happier occasions, but people had different expectations of life. You know, one of the most important things we've done around marriage is that we've brought happiness down from the heaven. Today it's a mandate. So am I happy in my marriage? <laughs> when was that ever such an important question? This idea that my marriage is supposed to give me something, that I'm supposed to get something from my partner and that my partner owes me that because somehow it was implicit in our agreement, in our joining together that we were going to give each other things. Like I'll never feel alone again. I'll never worry about abandonment. I'll never feel disconnected. I'll never feel unnoticed. So not that, but something far more engaged in their needs and mutual interests. Okay, moving on. Second is vocation or calling. He distinguishes this from a mere career, which is simply the utilization of available skills. Just because you can do something doesn't make it your calling. Whereas a vocation is something that you are drawn towards or compelled to do. The calling is more fulfilling than merely monetary compensation. And it's what you would do if you weren't afraid. For faith or philosophy, this is a matter of principles and beliefs, intellectual or religious beliefs that you are willing to live by and stand for. Things like truth, 
and justice. Truly committing to your convictions can be costly, but that's what we mean by people who are principled or who really believe. He points out a few shortcuts or pitfalls that undermine the effect of commitment. Defensiveness. If we always think that we're under siege, we turn tribal and everything becomes a conflict with enemies. Being bad at listening, where we rush to respond with off-the-shelf sayings and overused maxims. Invasive care. Going where we're unwanted. And intellectual mediocrity. Vague and mushy kindness that fails to communicate convictions. Of course, there's much, much more, but to move on to our fourth and final commitment, community. The two biggest takeaways from his commentary on community is that it is the path to actualization and the main model to make an impact. So first, community is how we become a fully formed person. Through relationships, we become neighbors, workers, citizens, and friends. As addressed earlier in the loneliness epidemic, it is others that provide perspective, insight, and maturity. If a philosopher refused to read or engage with the history of earlier thought, would it be any wonder if their ideas were malformed, incomplete, and immature? If a supposed scientist refused to stand on the shoulders of giants, would it be surprising if their findings were unsound? So it is with wisdom and character formation. You honor your parents and respect your elders because they've done it before. More on that in another episode. The other idea is how change comes from the character of individuals affecting their community, which gets replicated into the culture, expressed as civics, and then embodied into politics. He cites several historical examples of this model and makes the point that the only unit of scale and replication is of the local community. You can't transplant the rest without suffering from some metaphorical form of organ rejection. People look to politics to fix society's ills, but that's the last link in the chain. And political polarization is a poor substitute for community. And when you leave human beings naked and alone, they do what their evolutionary roots tell them to do. They revert to tribe. Tribalism seems like community. It's a way to bond, but it's really the dark twin of community. Community is based on mutual affection. Tribalism is based on mutual hatred and shared hatred. It's a high perception of threat. It's an us versus them, zero sum mentality, a scarcity mentality. Politics is war, distrust is the worldview. Ideas are combat, erect walls, build barriers, destroy the offenders. I mentioned the problem of our country. Our ideology is that half the country imagines they can destroy the other half and then get everything they want. And that will never happen. There's something to be said about the practicality of immediacy. We were not built to comprehend the infinite or even the very large. In scale, time, size, or scope, we understand the world just barely a bit beyond ourselves, but haven't evolved to truly intuit global actions on an individual basis, infinite timelines, or the law of very large numbers. <laughs> That's Nisbet. We'll talk about him another time. Much of our morality and philosophy starts to break down if you take away immediacy in time and place and start expanding out towards the infinite or the absurd. In the past, we've talked about how Peter Singer's Drowning Child and the Expanding Circle exposes these inconsistencies in our intuitions. But instead of high concept theory, abstract arguments, or policy positions, what if you just actually engaged with your community to bring about real positive change? The book is filled with heartwarming examples of that that don't exactly prove his point, but certainly inspire more activity at an immediate local level. Interacting with actual human beings seems like it could hardly hurt compared to the alternative. From a theological perspective, it provides a reason to incarnate the infinite and omni-everything into an individual at a certain point in time and space. 
and even he made his impact through a community of 12 as the model of replication, rather than pushing policy on the entire earth at once. And his father fixated on a single tribe, or even just a family or a person within it, expecting to affect the nations eventually. Okay, so that's it. Probably not a fair summary because he's been writing professionally for almost 40 years, so it's far more poetic than I can put it. Maybe not too rigorous in its proofs or positions, but still, it has the ring of truth to it. The good life. The relationalist is not trying to dominate life by sheer willpower. He is not gripping the steering wheel and trying to strategize his life. He has made himself available. He has opened himself up so that he can hear a call and respond to a summons. He is asking, what is my responsibility here? When a person finds his high calling in life, it doesn't feel like he has taken control. It feels like he has surrendered control. The most creative actions are those made in response to a summons. The summons often comes in the form of love. A person falls in love with her child, her husband, her her neighborhood, her calling, or her God. And with that love comes an urge to make promises, to say, I will always love you, I will always serve you and be there for you. Life is a veil of promise-making, or a summons may come in the form of a need. There is some injustice, some societal wrong that needs to be fixed. A person assumes responsibility, makes a promise to fight that fight and right that wrong. When a summons has been felt and a promise has been made, a commitment has been sealed. The life of a relationalist is defined by its commitments. The quality and fulfillment of her life will be defined by what she commits to and how she fulfills those commitments. A commitment is a promise made from love. A commitment is a promise made without expecting any return, though there will be returns aplenty. A committed relationship is a two-way promise. It is you throwing yourself wholeheartedly for another and another throwing himself wholeheartedly for you. The person makes his commitments maximal commitments. He doesn't just have a career. He has a vocation. He doesn't just have a contract marriage. What's in it for me? He has a covenantal marriage. I live and die for you. He doesn't just have opinions, he submits to a creed. He doesn't just live in a place, he helps build a community. Furthermore, he is not just committed to this abstract notion of community, he is committed to a specific community, to a specific person, to a specific creed, things grounded in particular times and places. By committing and living up to the daily obligations of his commitments, the person integrates himself into a coherent whole. Commitments organize the hours and the days of a life. A committed person achieves consistency across time. His character is built through the habitual acts of service to the people he loves. His character is built by being the humble recipient of other people's gifts and thus acknowledging his own dependency. A contract gets you benefits, but a commitment transforms who you are. The main point, though, is that in any serious relationship, there comes a crisis of commitment, which is well modeled in BVS on practically every level. I expect you already see it, but let's spell it out. Mankind is introduced to the Superman. Far from a rom-com meet-cute, it is a day of death and disaster for many. Yet, for mankind as a whole, let's call it the world, Superman is their savior, and to that end, they build him monuments and the questions never come. The suspension of negative judgment. Clark seems to think that this is the new norm and is content to continue in this way, but the euphoria passes and they experience the wake-up call. And now it's nothing but questions, and issues arise as if they're being seen for the very first time. Because they are. Another common criticism of BVS is that it didn't need Nairomi to raise all these issues. That the Black Zero event was in and of itself grounds to criticize Superman and drive the conflict with Batman. But that's true only in the abstract. While BVS was trying to recreate a realistic response to catastrophe and its aftermath. After the attacks on 9-11, American society was galvanized and nearly unanimous in its response. In 2001, 98 
out of 100 senators voted for the Patriot Act, and 93% of Americans polled by Gallup agreed with the war in Afghanistan. Two decades later, it seems impossible to imagine that we had ever agreed so much, but maybe that was just the early stages of infatuation, being blind only at first. What did we say earlier, that from six months to two years is the regular range? Surely it wouldn't be the same five years on, right? Well, by 2006, 89 of 100 senators voted to reauthorize the Patriot Act, and 72% of Americans still supported the decision to go to war. In fact, American support would not dip past 50-50 until 2014, over a decade later. As of October 2018, public support is below 30%, and even military veterans are 50-50 on something that we were all so sure of before. This is America's response to an attack. I can't fault the filmmakers for finding that the Kryptonian attack would be just as, if not more, unanimous and persistent in its expression. You don't build a 40-foot-tall recreation of a man that you have mixed feelings about, especially when the ask is so much less difficult and more specific than Afghanistan. We're not talking about philosophical questions about freedom versus security or whether to send our sons and daughters to war. The only consensus you need is that Superman saved you at great expense to himself and continued continues to do good even after the BZE. This is hardly controversial to begin with, so if it took 12 years to get to 50-50 on something so debatable, it is entirely reasonable to project that support for Superman would have lasted much longer. Anyone who understands the real world and the one built by BVS would see that no one was ready to condemn Superman until Lex instigated the Nairobi incident. Anyways, Lex has led the world to the wake-up call, and this creates a crisis of commitment for Clark. Whether he can continue to stand by his calling, creeds, his covenant, and community, we can do the marriage first and fast, because the world doesn't really have a say in that. Lois is asking questions, which asks them to consider if it's best to break up. This shows that Lois and Clark understand that your commitments must be balanced. If his calling and creeds are so critical to Clark and the world, Lois is willing to wonder if she should step aside. As a couple, they aren't joined at the hip, just spending all day in a super shiny silver bed. <laughs> <laughs> they both attend to their careers and their convictions. But it's in this period that Clark has to consider what he wants. Is being with Lois more important than being Superman? Does being Superman make it impossible to be with Lois? If he chooses Lois, then sometimes won't the world pay the price. And if his enemies always attack, what does that mean for Lois to be by his side? She was in Nairobi. If she had attended the hearing to testify too, she would have been caught in the bombing too. It's a lot to take. But by the end of the film, we know Clark's answer. He had sent the ring to say, Will you marry me? And also by the end, we know her answer. Lois is wearing the ring as she buries her beloved, choosing to make this thing bedrock. They'll figure out all the rest. Now, a critic may say that if he was so committed, then Clark should have put Lois above all else and not died at the hands of Doomsday. But that's a shallow and simple-minded proposition. As we raised earlier, the whole person has to balance their commitments, even in tension or in apparent paradox. For the committed man, this is a paradox to manage, not a problem to solve. His love of Lois creates complication for one of his callings. But let's press pause and talk about the press badge before we talk about the cape. 
as a Clark Kent fan, it is impossible for me to not love BVS because it is one of the best portrayals of Clark Kent as an actual reporter with principles and integrity, a passion for journalism, and not just as an excuse to hang around the woman of his dreams and get into trouble. Clark has supernatural skills, which makes his career options innumerable, but Clark is called to the vocation of journalism because it speaks to his soul, which yearns for truth and justice. We know this because he's willing to accept reprimand, ridicule, rejection, and sanction to speak out for things that he feels strongly about. The abuse of civil liberties by the bat is a story he can't help but chase. Reporting gives voice to Clark's convictions and principles expressly. A story is a choice about who matters, like good people living in fear. If the police won't help, the press has to do the right thing. The press stands for something. And these are principles challenged at every turn. His editor, the authority, and avatar of the modern press makes a mockery of Clark's commitment by sending him to fundraisers and football games. He makes fun of Clark's principles as unmarketable, old-fashioned, and unimportant. And yet, Clark continues, at the risk of his job and the wrath of his boss, because he believes and commits. It's easy to take this for granted because we're so used to the courage and convictions of our heroes, but take a second to consider if that's what most journalists would do. Turn a society section puff piece into a hard-hitting editorial that antagonizes one of the most powerful men in the world. Seek out the voices and stories of refugees, poor, marginalized, and terrorized. Print the truth about a violent vigilante who operates above the law and where the city turns a blind eye to the beatings, brandings, and even possible deaths all with your boss breathing down your neck to just turn over a frivolous football feature. I think it's more than fair to say that Clark went above and beyond, and that comes out of his commitment to his calling, his convictions, and yes, his community, writing stories taking place in his own backyard to change and transform where he calls home. <laughs> Forget about Superman, let's just end the episode right here. If you made Clark Kent your model of a man climbing the mountain of commitment, despite all the struggles and challenges to exhibit character and moral fiber, then you have chosen well. Heck, he even calls his mom. <laughs> but you get the point. It would be easy to compromise, turn away, or to quit. But in BVS, Clark is defined and grows by his commitments. <laughs> Phew. Okay, so that's Clark. Let's move on to Superman. So, for the Superman side of the career commitment, I get to reply to the criticism that Man of Steel is structured wrong, because it answers the question of, will Clark be a hero too early? That the film should have hid it from us to make that revelation the resolution of that question. Oh, I didn't know if I wanted to be a hero or not, but now I do! Now, the premise of that complaint is wrong on its face. If the film tells you that Clark is a hero within two minutes of meeting him, and ten minutes into our introduction to him, Clark has already been a hero twice over across 20 years of his life, 13 and 33, then that is not the bloody question of the film. It is not a theme or a debate or dramatic unknown to withhold or unfold, despite the superhero formula of following the rom-com formula of commitment, the will they, they won't they, chemistry, misunderstanding, agony, and then finally ending on infatuation never getting past happily ever after. That is not what's being conveyed in Man of Steel. This isn't about some juvenile man-child or reluctant hero where finally accepting an adult's responsibility is some awesome turning point for the protagonist. No, this is the story of somebody called to greatness from birth and committed to heroism or altruism for almost his entire life. The movie shows you that he's been a hero who saves lives and leaps into action from the formative age of 13, and even earlier ones mentioned only 
only in passing by the mom of Pete Ross. Two, our present day, when we first meet our anonymous fisherman. This is a man dedicated down to his bones to save and to help. It is his calling and commitment already made, instilled and enforced into him by the Kents and later affirmed by Jor-El. This isn't an adolescent story of Clark dragging his feet just to keep from growing up. This is a mature and adult story about the costs and challenges of keeping your commitments. The film is telling you that Clark is compelled to help and a hero at heart right from the start, meaning that the conflict and drama isn't whether he'll be a hero, but how hard it is to be a hero, how hard it is to wait even though you have so much potential and passion, how hard it is to keep your secret even though you know you can use your gifts right now. It's easy to forget that the fight in the car before the tornado scene was about calling, Clark wanting to be useful to the world even if it meant exchanging safety. The point of showing you that Clark is a hero is so that you know that he wants to save Jonathan, that it isn't just the loss of Jonathan. It's how the commitment to the whole world can conflict with your personal desires and heroic nature. It is painful to experience the fact that a hero isn't just the person who always just does what he wants. Of course, Clark already knows this. He already knows sacrifices will have to be made, that it's wrong to punch bullies, that he's gonna have to surrender himself to Zod and so on. But this is a story about how knowing and doing are different things. That convictions on paper have to be lived out as experiences in life, as painful as they may be. That when the world still needs time, a hero is willing to give it at the expense of his life. And Clark has faith in his father's decision despite wanting to do the exact opposite. Again, not a question of whether he'll be a hero, but the challenge of it. The tension lies in the keeping of the commitment and the desire to break it. So it's fair to say that Clark questions his commitments. Do I need to put up with this? Do I need to keep going? Do I really have to do this? But this is always in the context that he is already a hero. It would always be the case that Clark would be an altruist. He was always there to help, just as Lois had observed from afar. The question in BVS is, must there be a Superman? Even if Clark Kent continues to do good, even if there's an alien amongst them, why did it have to continue to take the shape of the Superman? A public figure doing feats of good, which fosters hope in some and foments fear in others. The film goes out of its way again and again to distinguish the idea of Superman from its actual incarnation in Clark. The preposition in the sentence, mankind is introduced to the Superman. Clark, seemingly speaking in the third person, saying, Superman was never real. And several other instances. Clark will always Always be there to help. But does he have to do it as Superman? Is the Superman something worth fighting for? And that brings us to the commitment of faith or philosophy, creeds or convictions. BVS is a full-on crisis of faith for Superman. It is the unraveling of his beliefs and whether he can continue to commit to them. In most mainstream movies, there's only one or two principles tested and not too hard or beyond the breaking point. In the real world, there's nothing to hold back how far and how much your faith will be tested. In this world, chaos and catastrophe can happen to anyone, anytime. Rain falls on the just and the unjust. And when it rains, it pours. Poor Superman. Well, we can start with the press. On principle, Superman believes that the press stands for something. But behind the scenes, he can see Perry pushing sensationalism, divide, and fluff. Doing a favor for the rich while ignoring stories of the poor. And obviously, he can see how the pundits swarm when there's blood in the water. No one standing up for him. Let's look at truth, justice, and the American way. Superman believes in the truth. But the press are perpetuating lies. The story about Nairobi isn't true. The pundits push positions. And Perry won't let 
let him publish the truth about the Batman. Speaking of which, justice is civil rights, due process, and rule of law. But Batman is judge, jury, and executioner. The Bat is accepted and endorsed, while Superman is being protested and called to account. People want violent vigilantes. Is that justice? In Man of Steel, Superman sampled some of the American way as he was accepted as an ally and saw service, unity, and noble sacrifice in the line of duty. Yet in the aftermath of Africa, Superman sees cowardice, hypocrisy, power plays, and blame. To Superman, he is indifferent to class or wealth. He'll stand up for the poor just as he'll save the life of Lex Luthor. But in BVS, it's obvious that the rich are inordinately powerful and above the law. Lex can handpick a reporter to appear, has influence over Congress, and eventually reveals his underworld actions. The Batman turns out to be a billionaire industrialist who seems to be getting away with murder. Superman believes that this world can be a great people. Krypton had its chance. But now, it's easy to have doubts. Of course, these are all just circumstances, so maybe Superman still believes all of the above without reservation. I don't think so, and we can look to the dialogue and work backwards to show his crisis of faith. I'm afraid I didn't see it because I wasn't looking. All this time, I've been living my life the way my father saw it. Writing wrongs for a ghost. Thinking I'm here to do good. Superman was never real. Just the dream of a farmer from Kansas. That farmer's dream is all some people have. It's all that gives them hope. This means something. It did on my world. My world doesn't exist anymore. I'm afraid I didn't see it because I wasn't looking. Clark is coming to realize that he had been blissfully unaware, blinded by euphoria, the suspension of negative judgment. That this is how the world has always been, he just didn't see it until now. And this calls into question all his fundamental beliefs about the world, his purpose, and his parenting. Superman was never real. Clark had believed that he was sent here for a purpose, that he was here for a reason, that he could help, but it felt like the world wanted him gone and was willing to hurt itself to do it. It did on my world. So Clark currently feels that the shield is meaningless here. He had believed that he could bring them hope, but nothing after the bombing looks like hope. My world doesn't exist anymore. Clark proudly called Kansas home earlier, and now he's back to feeling alien, exiled, and alone. The final falter of faith is when he says no one stays good in this world. Even after coming to terms with the chaos, after coming down from the mountain, Lex shatters the unspoken belief that Clark had been operating under. Not that everyone stays good, or that all can be good, but that he would stay good. When Swanwick asks if he'll act against them, Clark is glib that they'll have to trust him because he trusts himself. He's here to help. He's only ever had good intentions and the best of efforts. He's always believed in goodness, helping, and altruism without ego or reward. But what did his righteousness get him? Dozens dead at the hands of a madman holding a gun to the head of his mother unless he sheds blood. Clark had believed that he could never break bad. He would never abuse his power, never intentionally harm, never turn tyrant or oppressor. And this is why he judged Batman so harshly as a hero who seemed to break his commitment to justice. Clark didn't believe that he would fall, that he would stay good in this world. How else was he delighted? But Lex exposed his hubris and his humanity. Clark was as corruptible as anyone, it seemed. If he didn't get the Bat to help, he would have to die. Such a stark calculation chills him to the core and undoes his understanding of himself. He's thrown from the mountaintop and into the valley, but instead of breaking, Clark breaks open. 
This crisis of faith creates an opportunity for understanding, openness, and empathy. It's when his own self-righteousness is exposed and shattered that Clark finally understands the bat. He can see things from Batman's perspective. The threat that he posed if promises were broken, if he couldn't stay good. He can see how he set an ultimatum on Batman from on high like a tyrant and felt that same indignity as Lex had threatened him. And he could see how you could fail to see or understand despite good intentions wanting to save and be the hero. Lex's preoccupation with the position of Superman made him overlook that Superman's greatest strength is his humanity and humility, that being humbled only makes Superman more of what he is, and able to overcome. In that human connection that Superman is able to reach out to Batman and together bond to beat the bad guys. In his last living lines, Superman resolves his crisis in the most meaningful of commitments. You cannot commit more than to give your life, love, heart, and soul to something. I love you. No. No, Clark, you can't. This is my world. No, Clark, don't. You are my world. No. There is the clarity of commitment after confronting the crisis. He affirms his lasting love of Lois. This world for all its issues is worth saving and being Superman for. And finally, that his commitments are embodied in action. Loving Lois, love the world. Saving Lois, save the world. The local act is of global impact. In retrospect, it is when the people try to reverse this dynamic that issues arise in our fourth and final commitment, community. Unseen global entanglements turn an otherwise well-intended rescue into an international incident. As it said, On this earth, every act is a political act. But no, that's wrong. When I hug my children and I kiss my wife, that is not a political act. There is nothing earnest for the pundit to proffer on governance or power in those intimate expressions of love. And when we make a commitment to a community, it is a course of action mediated by actual people in shared space and time, not concepts stripped of their heart, numbers without names, and ideas over actuality. In broader terms, it is when the immediately applicable is overlooked and abstracted to absurdity. And so we can see in BVS assorted examples of this. Batman's 1% doctrine turns the improbable into the infinite. Batman's suicide mission turns a 20-year career into nothing in his mind. His commitments to his community, the city of Gotham, is cast aside in favor of some abstract notion of saving the entire world. This is about the future of the world. It's my legacy. As alluded to above, Clark starts with the commitment to his community. He's serving mostly Metropolis, mostly in America. He has amazing powers, which means that he could work on a worldwide scale doing all sorts of interventions and confronting all sorts of injustices. But Clark seems strangely focused on the Batman. As controversial or as questionable as the Batman is, on a global scale, aren't there greater issues afoot, more obvious evils, more pain and suffering that Superman can attend to? Why does Clark care more about a handful of criminals with broken bones over issues abroad, like unrest in Africa. It's because Clark intuits the idea at issue, that action is appropriate first and foremost where you are. Superman has to start somewhere. If he's to be a beacon and an ideal to strive for, then what use are his actions if they are only that of a god? If Superman unilaterally disarms the planet through sheer force of his power, what is there for you to follow? That's an inducement to exploit our power to its utmost at our own 
Superman will, even without invitation, understanding, or connection. No, instead, Superman acts immediately, locally, and continually, using his gifts in as faultless a way possible, accepted and endorsed, where he works. Which is what you can do, too. You have to start somewhere. Start with what's right before you, in your domain, in the place you live, care about, and understand. The problems start when Clark is induced to act outside of that, into a nest of conflicting, hidden, and hypocritical interests, where any intervention would be almost impossible to untangle. When Superman starts to receive criticism from the media, he tries to take his action abroad in answer. But this does not quell concern, and only increases questions of loyalty, nationalism, politics, and will. For Lex, his problem of evil is an abstract, cosmological question that can't comprehend the infinite, not an actual reality at a community level. No one confronted with real flesh-and-blood people and real practical problems right then and there worries about whether absolute power and absolute good can coexist. Lex has forgotten that philosophy is a tool, and that a tool must be utilized properly in place and time and purpose. You don't brush your teeth with a hammer just because it exists, and you don't say that Superman is God just because you need therapy. If the tool isn't practical to apply, useful to life, thought, or decision, it is most likely inappropriate or misapplied. And Lex knows the holes in his own argument, which is why his plot is filled with image-conscious contrivances that ignore or deny the reality of Clark. Kent, the humanity behind his straw man for God. We are called to action in our communities because that is where our impact is understood and can change the world. This is why the ideal Superman always continues to have ties to Earth, Metropolis, and Smallville. He isn't out to optimize the abstract, alleged utilitarian exploitation of his powers out there in the cosmos as a marvelous intergalactic space captain. Perhaps, in theory, saving many more magnitudes of lives at times, but completely divorced from his identity understanding, context, and commitments. Not as an absolute, of course. Sometimes you have to step up and do more on a larger stage, but only if and when you've shown that commitment to your local community. In the comics, it's never a question whether Superman and Metropolis go hand in hand. Despite the ability to move at astounding speeds and a reputation that lets him practically ignore national borders, the creators and the fans have understood that no man is an island and that no man is complete until he has a community to call home. As a last contrast between local community and global impact, consider the conclusion of BVS, all those circuses back east. Undoubtedly, Superman's funeral was felt worldwide. From Justice League, we see the global grief. We see the parades in Washington and Metropolis, but consider that the funeral that actually matters is in Clark's local community. The sad Smallville procession of the ones that really mattered to him, who could call him by name and knew who he was community in comparison to circus. Another step back, consider how cold and impersonal the international expression. Black banners on national monuments compared to the tears of the crowd surrounding Superman's personal monument. A community touched and saved by Superman showing up in sorrow. Yes, you can impact and change the world, but start where you are. Save one, save the world. This Independence Day, consider that freedom of capacity may be found in interdependence, commitment to community. Even if initially it was a tribal celebration against a common enemy, today, Independence Day has nothing to do with hating the Brits and everything to do with our mutual affection for our country. It's a celebration of ourselves as a nation that we're all in it together and especially experienced locally with family, friends, and fireworks. And if you're alone this 4th or 
or feel alone. That's okay too. Loneliness isn't fault, shame, or weakness. It's the human condition. Even the most powerful man in the world was lonely. Even the most brilliant billionaire was lonely. These films show us that we can grow in character through our commitments as friends, husbands, fathers, and teammates. To say that it is hard is an understatement, but I believe in you. You are not alone. Okay, I've rambled on long enough. But speaking of community, as I used to say, I just love discussing this stuff. And if you've been sticking with me, hopefully you do too. I have to believe that if you're one of the people still listening to me ramble on quite long with irregular releases and on all manner of topics after 80 hours across five years, that you're my people, my community. I don't do ads, self-promote, or spam the net with the podcast because I like to think that it will be found by the people who are looking, the people with questions that want to dive deep into discussion and that aren't looking for attacks or agenda. And if you've been listening to this buried so deeply into a brief, I'm happy to think that you found it, that it's you, the community that I can feel that I can ask for help. So to keep the cast up and going, I'd like to ask you to consider giving a donation through PayPal or buying a t-shirt through Bonfire. This is just to cover costs, and I'm grateful for anything that you can give. There should be links in the show notes, or you can go to manofsteelanswers.com. I've never done anything like this before, but the shirt features the new Digital Mosaic Shield logo, because we're all made up of a mosaic of things, but falling apart at the same time. But together, it's a beautiful dynamic whole. <laughs> you can also show your support by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. Now that I'm doing these more informal briefs, eventually I'd like to read the reviews as an episode. So if you want to get it on air, here's your opportunity. And of course, if you like what you heard, you can share the show. So just to give you an idea of what's coming up, next episode is some research onto movie critics and the fundamental attribution error. And after that, we're going to talk about some differences between Eastern and Western cultural thought. Those are more traditional episodes backed by much more research and science, but I've enjoyed rambling on this episode. I just love these films that are so rich and so true on so many levels still to this day. They are a joy to revisit visit. And I got a couple other things in the works that I'm not mentioning yet. If the episode isn't too long, I might throw some extras from the vault at the end. But thanks so much for listening. Please donate, buy a shirt, share, or send a review. Let me hear from you, and I'll see you next time. You're the answer, son. A declaration of interdependence. A good society is like a dense jungle. There are enmeshed root systems and connections across the canopy. Every creature has a place in the great ecosystem. There is a gorgeous diversity of beauty and vitality. A good person leading a good life is a creature enmeshed in that jungle. A beautiful life is a planted life, attached but dynamic. A good life is a symbiotic life. 
serving others wholeheartedly and being served wholeheartedly in return. It is daily acts of loving-kindness, gentleness in reproach, forbearance after insult. It is an adventure of mutual care, building, and exploration. The crucial question is not who I am, but whose am I? Most of us get better at living as we go. There comes a moment when you realize what your life is actually about. You look across your life and review the moments when you felt more fully alive, at most your best self. They were usually moments when you were working with others in service of some ideal. That is the moment when you achieve clarity about what you should do and how you should live. That is the moment when the ego loses its grip. There is a sudden burst of energy that comes with freedom from the self-centered ego. That is the moment when a life comes to a point. When you see people at that point, you realize they have an interior stronghold of values and devotions against which even the threat of death could not prevail. When you see people at that point, you see a generosity that radiates out into the world. You see people giving of themselves, not even in the grand ways, but just in the small favors and thoughtful considerations. This is how the jungle becomes thick and healthy. When you see a group of people in that state, you see not just individuals, but a people, a community, a flourishing society, where people help one another, magnify one another's talents, enjoy one another's creativity, and rest in one another's hospitality. When you see people at the point, you see people with a power that overcomes division and distrust. Distrust is a perversity. No one wants to live in a distrusting place or be lonely. Distrust comes about because of our own failings of relationship. But love has a redemptive power. It has the power to transform individuals and to break down distrust. Division is healed not mostly by solving the bad, but by overwhelming the bad with the good. If you can maximize the number of good interactions between people, then the disagreements will rest in a bed of loving care, and the bad will have a tendency to take care of itself. When trust is restored, the heartbeat relaxes. People are joyful together. Joy is found on the far side of sacrificial service. It is found in giving yourself away. When you see that, you realize joy is not just a feeling, it is a moral outlook. It is a permanent state of thanksgiving and friendship, communion and solidarity. This is not an end to troubles and cares. Life doesn't offer us utopia, but the self has shrunk back to its proper size. When relationships are tender, when commitments are strong, when communication is pure, when the wounds of life have been absorbed and the wrongs forgiven, people bend toward each other, intertwine with one another, and some mystical combustion happens. Love emerges between people out of nothing as a pure flame. You're the answer, son.